So in case you missed the news, and we all know y'all didn't miss the news, earlier this week, Fox News dumped Tucker Carlson and CNN canned Don Lemon, both on the same day. And while I'm not one to cheer a fellow human's loss of employment, in this case, I'm going to make an exception. While Tucker is obviously far worse than Lemon, both men excelled in the modern news phenomena that I absolutely hate, namely telling viewers what they should think and reinforcing their audience's viewpoints. I mean, that's what cable news has done to us. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want to learn. We want to hear that our tribe is right and the other tribe is wrong, period. So while I'm probably being overly optimistic, I'm hoping that just maybe the departures of Carlson and Lemon symbolize a shift in this nation. And perhaps we all can, I don't know, read a book or a newspaper article and once again, formulate our own opinions. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Chad Finn, the Boston Globe sports media columnist and the editor of a fascinating new book, The Boston Globe's Story of the Red Sox, more than a century of championships, challenges, and characters. This is episode number 308. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Chad, we were just chatting beforehand about our shared ties to the America East Conference and whether uh, Francois Brochard would, playing one-on-one <laughs> against Spencer Dunkley, might have the upper hand. Are you? Can you make the argument that those main teams were better than those Delaware teams back in the early 90s? I think everybody's uh, anticipating a 1993 America East Batman's <laughs> basketball podcast, so we're really filling a void here. <laughs> As I was telling you off air, I mean, Maine's never made the tournament. Maine's won hockey national championships, and I would trade a hockey national championship to uh, just get one tournament appearance uh, and just see them play on that Thursday. And the, the best hope they ever had uh, was back in those early 90s with Francois again, and uh, the Delaware and Drexel teams came into the league and just uh, ruined those dreams, ruined those ruined those opportunities. So 30, 30 years later here, I've never forgiven Delaware. You know, it is interesting. We did have um, Vin Baker come through and we had Malik Rose come through. Those are two legit. Yeah. Yep. Legit NBA players. So there you go. Um, all right. So you're the editor of a new book that came out, The Boston Globe's Story of the Red Sox, More Than a Century of Championships, Challenges, and Characters. When I was at Sports Illustrated, we used to have this debate all the time, whether the older writers were better than the current generation of writers. How you know, back? going back to the Red Smith era, going back to the sort wow. of era of older writers where everyone was like, oh, Red Smith was the best. You know, that guy's the best. And sometimes you'd read a Red Smith, Smith lead and be like, Oh, this is kind of hokey. This isn't this isn't really what I thought. And then other times you'd be blown away. And your book is really a chronicling. Yeah, it's a chronicling of the Red Sox, but really a chronicling of globe coverage of the Red Sox. Like it's almost to me more a journalism book than it is a Red Sox book to a certain degree. Yep. And you, you comb through the years, you comb through the years, you comb through the years. So I'm going to throw a big fat question at you. All right. Are sports writers better now than they were a century ago? Hell yes. <laughs> Why? Uh, I, I think you just learn a lot of things. Uh, well, you, specifically individually, you learn, but 
the whole, I guess the whole landscape changes. And I think for the better where you uh, learn the, the writing is much more concise, um, probably more colorful. I would say with the Red Sox book, it became much more colorful in the 40s when Ted Williams arrived. And, uh, you know, he's such a cantankerous guy, but he was also available to the media for the most part. So he made for great copy. And so you end up with all these um, just uh, fascinating columns and and, uh, interviews with him where he's simultaneously telling you that reporters suck, but also just uh, giving uh, incredible thoughts about all sorts of things but uh, yeah you go back a hundred years and um there's a reason there's fewer of those stories in the book than there are of uh, say peter gammons in the 70s because some of it's hard to get through um it's it's overly flowerly it's play by play chronologically in a lot of cases i think the red sox back when they won world series in the early 1900s at the advent of their uh, history the game stories were 3,000 words in the paper because you had no other way of getting the information unless you were at the game. So they're just uh, so-and-so. Harry Hooper hit a ground ball at third base. Uh, Trish Speaker moved over to uh, score it on the play or whatever. And as things evolved, and it really was an evolution, uh, the you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do the play-by-play. People had the other way, had other ways of finding out watching on TV. And so you became... Journal, I, I think the writing turned more towards uh, uh, being more specific and talking about the more interesting people and developments in the game. And uh, it's, uh, there's there's no comparison between now and 50 years. No, I shouldn't say 50, 70, 75 years ago. And, uh, you know, uh, compared to what we have right now. The reason I really love this book, like I know. Once you hit like the late 70s, early 80s, it's all familiar turf for me. And I, I wasn't reading The Globe, but it's writers I know and names I know. You wrote in the yeah. about about uh, Tim Murnane. And you wrote, Tim Murnane played for eight seasons in the National Association, the first fully professional league, before embarking on a 30-year career writing about baseball for The Globe. He was a prolific writer, his weekly baseball column, a direct ancestor of the Sunday Notes, former Peter Gammons, popularized in the 70s, often surpassed 2,000 words. And... um he did. You wrote, Murnane was also an ex- extremely connected and trusted reporter. And this shit jumped off the page right here. When Red Sox manager Chick Stahl committed suicide on March 28, 1907, Murnane's account in the Globe was impeccably sourced and agonizingly detailed. He had quotes from Red Sox star Jimmy Collins, who was in Stahl's presence when the tragic act occurred. And of course, I immediately go to this article, March 29, 1907, and the lead was, Chick Stahl is dead. One of the greatest <laughs> boss- but wait, here's all right. Wait, let's start with that. Let's actually Cut do to the chase. <laughs> let's actually go with this. I like that lead. I'm totally cool with Chick Stahl is dead. Do you disagree? People didn't know he was dead. <laughs> is that a bad lead? Is that could you get away with that now in 2023? Uh, people would know, right? They would have seen it on Twitter or heard rumors uh, that uh, Chick Stahl might be dead and uh, TMZ would have it. Um, no, it's not a bad lead. And that story's fantastic. And, you know, we're talking about the, you know, how the writing's infinitely better now. But Murnane was great. His stuff, I think, for the most part, was really readable. That story, he, I mean, he had every detail in there about what his last words were, what he said, his frame of mind, things like that. And I just thought, I'd kill for that kind of access today. You know? <laughs> yeah, if something like that, uh, 
God forbid, happen now, it, w- it would take a you know hell of a connected journalist and, and a real true insider, which is a word that always gets thrown around and really very, very few people are actually insiders these days. And uh, it would take somebody like that to actually get the details of what happened. And honestly, I don't know if the newspaper would publish as many specifics or the website now would publish as many specifics as uh, the Globe did in that story about what exactly happened, um, you know, when Chickstall committed suicide. This is one of the craziest stories ever. I just want to read a little bit. <laughs> Captain Stahl was about to start for morning practice at 950 when alone in his room, he was taken with an insane impulse to end his life. Stepping into James Collins's room, which connected with his own, he drew forth a four-ounce bottle of carbolic acid and swallowed nearly three ounces, tossing the bottle readily into- available apparently back then. Hey, you know, you go to the machine, you get your acid. Tossing the bottle into a corner, he staggered into the next room just as Jimmy Collins was passing and took a long drink of ice water. Soon after, Collins noticed his friend reeling about the room and asked what the matter was. Stahl made some offhanded reply and rode over onto the bed. Like it's, he was there. If, if we took T.H. Murnane and zapped him into 2023, could he be a beat writer on it? Could he handle the Red Sox beat once he got a handle on Twitter? Uh, he'd be uh, probably too busy updating uh, the blog with uh, the starting lineup or something. But <laughs> uh, no, I mean, just you, you wouldn't have that kind of access for a lot of reasons. The, the ball club's uh, uh, very specific on when you're allowed to be around when you're not so that makes it uh, more difficult to build those kind of relationships i mean frankly you know it sounded like he was friends with jimmy collins and uh, probably a colleague at one point in a way because he played the game himself and renee did um and the other thing is just nowadays the divide between the money the players make and the life, frankly, that the players live and, you know, the money reporters make, they don't really have a lot of reasons to talk to us. They can get their own message out there. Um, they don't really need the publicity to get endorsements or whatever it might be. And so you're just not on the same level with them as maybe a, a reporter would have been back then. Or Frank, you know, even 50 years ago, Gammons used to shag fly balls in batting practice but at Fenway and, uh, you know, they go out to the bars and the reporters and, and, uh, the ball players would, you know, I'll be there mingling among themselves. And that sort of thing just doesn't happen anymore because you're just on these, uh, different levels of, uh, of where you are financially, but also where you kind of, uh, rank in the hierarchy culture wise. What would be the heyday for our profession as far as most respected, most access well, Bob Ryan got really mad in the press box one night <laughs> covering a Patriots game because his globe-issued computer wasn't working, which tends to happen. And he uh, he started yelling, I can't stand these things anymore. I just want to go back to 1983 where it, with, everything was perfect. So I've always thought in 1983 is the heyday just because Bob saw it that way. But uh, I grew up a Red Sox fan. I started following the team in 78 when I was eight years old and uh, reading Gammons and the Globe and Lee Montfield and the Globe and this great columnist, Ray Fitzgerald, who um, he has one of the stories in the book that I love the most. It's when Tiant, Louis Tiant signed to the Yankees and he ends it by saying he wants to go stick his head in an oven. Kind of captures the feeling of Red Sox fans at that point, too. Um, you had great access. The possibility of building an actual trusted relationship with a player was much higher than, and yeah, being a newspaper reporter, um, 
you know, the globe had money, classified money flowing in through the windows. You could uh, go travel anywhere and cover whatever you wanted and it, it could be afforded. And of course, that, you know, that has changed over the last 20, 25 years. So um, I would say late 70s, especially from the standpoint of the book and covering a particular, you know, covering the Red Sox throughout the history, that would uh, that would be where I would want to be. I just want to say the uh, the column you referenced by Ray Fitzgerald, November 14th, 1978, Tion takes his act to the Big Apple. And he wrote, this is no time for logic. This is no time to call Havana to find out if he's really 49 years old. This is no time to assume <laughs> he was asking the Red Sox for an impossible contract, say Central America with a fence around it. You can have calmness and reason. I'm going to bay at the moon and bang my head against the wall. I'm going to throw things and stamp my feet and call the Red Sox administration dumb and cold and short-sighted. I'm going to suggest the Red Sox lack a sense of history and have developed the business of alienating fans into an art form. And then I'm going to sail away to a desert island accompanied only by a case of Jack Daniels. And I'm going to try and forget Luis Tian is now a Yankee. And then ah. the last paragraph is Louis Louis echoing out of the cursed uh, mausoleum in the South Bronx. I may skip that trip to the desert island and stick my head in the nearest oven. <laughs> How great is that? Ray Fitzgerald, I feel like, is a guy that most people listening to this podcast are certainly not familiar with. What's the scouting report on Ray Fitzgerald? He, like Tim Renane, was an ex-ball player. He played at uh, Notre Dame. Basically, he was there late 60s through the 70s. Uh, that's a great sampling of what a fantastic writer he was. And he died young. I think he died in 1980 or 81 in his 40s, um, unexpectedly. And, you know, uh, the discussion at the Globe, if you bring it up with Dan Shaughnessy or Ryan or uh, Jackie McMullen um, about who the, the true greatest Globe columnist was, uh, I, I think the consensus would be Lee Monfield, but Ray Fitzgerald's name would come up pretty fast too. He was uh, he was not one of those um, you know one of those people like Dan who uh, he could uh, really really pick a team apart and maybe emphasize the negative a, a little too much. Uh, he was uh, just more of a stylist than anything else, a storyteller, uh, and you know could get out the knives when he needed to, but. Uh, he preferred just to write something that was really, uh, really a great read rather than something that took somebody down. You know, it's interesting. I worked with Lee Montville when I was at SI. I love Lee Montville. I didn't work with Peter Gammons, but he was there at SI before I got there. And I've never thought about asking anyone this or even talking to anyone about this, but I wonder from the Boston landscape, do you think it was viewed, Montville goes to SI, Gammons goes to SI. Was it viewed negatively was it a journalistic was it journalistic malpractice to leave the globe and the loyal fan base and the loyal readership and to go to sort of the big you know death star yeah i mean uh i think globe management viewed it that way for sure um i mean you know how the landscape changed over uh after the emergence of espn uh where suddenly the newspapers weren't just the destination anymore forever the Globe was the endpoint for a great writer's career. You got here, you stayed. And then uh, Will McDonough got the NBC gig. He became the first reporter to kind of be the uh, quote unquote insider on TV. And that opened up a lot of doors there. And then ESPN comes along and these writers get to be on television. Uh, CNN SI was like that too, roughly at the same time in the early 90s. 
and it's suddenly a step up from the newspaper. It's more money, uh, broader reach. And I think newspapers had a really hard time adjusting to that for a long time, that your best people could just pack up and leave. But on the other end of it, the companies that were hiring these guys often didn't use them the right way. And SI hired Gammons as an NHL writer. He was the best baseball writer in the country. When he went to SI, they put him on the hockey beat initially. And then he came back to the Globe and then he went back to SI as a baseball writer again. But um, sometimes uh, sometimes taking that step ended up not being what the, the writer expected to be. Bob Ryan actually left the Globe in the mid 80s uh, to do local TV and uh, ended up coming back. Um, but uh, uh, it, it was a really tempting leap for everybody to make as, as those doors opened. And newspapers are arrogant about it. They didn't understand why their best people would go to something else. I never address these kind of things, but you're here. So let's talk about it. Like, um, Uh-oh. when I was, no, 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 it's nothing. When I was at SI, <laughs> so Gammons fills up a lot of your book. He's a, he's a presence in your book, no doubt about it. And he's one of the great baseball reporters of all time, no doubt about it. When I was at SI, and I've never said this, I swear, you would hear a lot of, eh, he's an excellent reporter. He's not that good of a writer. That was kind of the scouting reporter, Peter Gammons, when he was at Sports Illustrated. I never really felt that way. I always thought he was a really good writer, but there was a lot of that. And I wonder, going through his stuff, was he a great writer? Was he a good writer who could report? What Sort of what was he at his best? Uh, his finished product was always great. Yeah, and uh, super informative. And, you know, he was the first guy, or at least the first guy we knew of here in New England that would incorporate things like, you know, pop culture, uh, have music lyrics in his writing, that uh, rock music lyrics that, a, you know, a younger uh, demographic would like. But he required editing. The thing I always heard was that there wasn't much, if any, punctuation with what he, what he filed. <laughs> yeah, it's overrated. Uh, but, you know, once you decide where those periods and commas are going, that, uh, you know, you could make it sing. And uh, I think probably the copy editors earned their money to a degree. But, the you know, the words were all his. And I think the best story in this book is his game story in Game 6 written on deadline uh, in the 1975 World Series. It's, it's poetic. Uh, you know, nowadays, maybe if someone submitted that, that editor would say, well, that's a little too over the top. But it was absolutely perfect for the moment. and. Uh, uh, when I was told I was doing this book, my editor asked me to do it. And I initially started thinking about, well, what are we absolutely going to have in there? Like the first three things I thought of were Gammon's stories, the 70, game six and 75, 78 playoff game of the Yankees. And uh, Yaz was retirement in 83. He followed Yaz around, um, around the ballpark after the final out of the final game of his career against the Indians in, in uh, September, September, October, 83. And just uh, incredibly rich, richly reported story. And uh, key still to me, even if, uh, you know, he wasn't huge on exclamation points or whatever, um, is, is still the, uh, the number one guy that is probably going to draw people to this book. October 22nd, 1975, the headline was Fist Home Run in 12th Beats Reds 7-6. I want to know what you think of the lead. And all of a sudden, the ball was there, like the Mystic River Bridge suspended out in the black of the morning. When it finally crashed off the mesh attached to the left field foul pole, one step after another, the reaction unfurled. From Carlton Fisk's convulsive leap to John Kiley's booming of the Hallelujah Chorus to the wearing off 
of the numbness to the outcry that echoed across the cold New England morning. At 12.34 a.m. in the 12th inning, Fisk's histrionic home run brought a 7-6 end to a game that will be the pride of historians in the year 23-25, a game won and lost what seems like a dozen times, and a game that brings back summertime one more day for the seventh game of the World Series. It's fucking poetry. I don't know how you could read that and say that guy's not a good writer. Right. Yeah. But then uh, if you read it all as one run on sentence that it might have come in as, you know, five minutes after the game ended, uh, uh, probably if you're the copy editor, you're not that thrilled to be getting that (laughs) deadline. But it's phenomenal. And like I said, it's the first thing that popped out to me. You reminded me, too. I was was wondering if the score was going to come up at any point because the first Red Sox game I ever covered in my life uh, I was working at a smaller paper up in Concord, New Hampshire. Forgot, it was a playoff game. Trot Nixon hits a home run off Rich Harden to, to beat the A's in uh, 2003. And I forgot to put the score in my story. <laughs> Overrated <laughs> detail. <laughs> you know, back in the day, writers were drinking in the press box and there was a lot of like, it, it was a different era. It's a swashbuckly era of reporting. Yeah. And nowadays, Editing is so thin and there's so fewer, there's so fewer layers you have to go through before your copy actually goes from whatever you typed up to it appearing. Do you feel like if you took these guys nowadays, they would be exposed as, you know, would Peter Gammons not be able to write without punctuation in 2023? Would would people be like, what the fuck are you doing? And keep them covering high school sports. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, he, he came to the globe the same day Bob Ryan did. In 1968, both his interns, Bob from BC and Peter from North Carolina, um, I think it was the day Bobby Kennedy got shot. I think uh, I think that's what Bob told me. But um, obviously, to get the Globe internship at that point in time, they were both pretty highly thought of. So, uh, someone at their college paper or, or where you know whatever their clips came from um, probably was. Uh, uh, doing a pretty good job of helping them through the editing process as well. But, uh, you know, Gammons has had, uh, as his career has changed, as he's gotten older, he's had uh, sites where he's doing the writing himself, but it doesn't seem like there's editing. And you can kind of see, you know, where his flaws are a little bit and, and you know, maybe why he had uh, that reputation to agree at SI. Um, but it's still very readable. And, What's interesting is the copy editors, a lot of the copy editors we still have remaining at the Globe uh, in sports were roughly around the same time that uh, at, at points in time where Peter was here. And Peter came back, he was here in the early 90s. Uh, and the couple of the lead guys on our copy desk have, have been here since the mid 80s. So I worry what happens when, uh, you know, the, the, the last of the veteran copy editors are really just have this incredible ability that I'm grateful for to either save your ass from a mistake you made or just make your writing uh, um, a little bit better. I'm worried about what happens when that generation is, is retired because I don't know if uh, copy editing is, is, is a priority for people coming out of college. Now they have so many other options journalistically about just the various directions you can try to take your career and, uh, try to become a brand on your own and things like that. Whereas, you know, back when I was coming up and, and uh, you, you knew you could really rely on your desk. You'd have fights with them yeah. uh, if, oh, if yeah. they over edited you, but you know, they were, they were there to generally make you uh, 
make you even better than than you were when you submitted your work. I'm embarrassed to ask this question, but does does Gamut still write? Uh for the athletic periodically. Yeah, he's he's I don't know if he's partially retired, but he was at Fenway yesterday for opening day. I think he's been there 50 years in a row now for opening day. Um, and uh, I think when the inspiration strikes him, uh, he's kind of got an open-ended deal with the athletic to write whatever he wants. Oh, man. Um, obviously, you cover media uh, and you know sports media for, for the Globe. And I wonder, like, and I don't know the answer. It's like back in the day, these writers, uh, Bob Ryan, Peter Gammons, you know, Dan Shaughnessy, these guys were known celebrities in Boston. They were known guys. Bob Ryan was an enormous deal in Boston, as an example. Um, and they didn't have social media. They didn't have Twitter, or Facebook, any of that shit. No. Are, so they didn't have the benefit of social media, but they were huge. Are writers more known now? than they were then are you more of a celebrity as a journalist now than you were then i'll let you know uh, once i have a book signing and uh, whether or not anybody shows up (laughs) (laughs) that'll be my gauge um i don't think so even though there are are way more opportunities now to get your name and face out there uh i do back say back in the 80s you know go back to 83 and that year bob ryan reference when his uh his Dell wouldn't work. <laughs> um, you, you know, the, the circulation of paper was enormous. Um, there was still uh, an element of I have to read the Globe or the Boston Herald or the New York Times to really find out what happened with the Red Sox, Patriots, Celtics, Bruins last night, uh, you know, Yankees or whatever. If you're in New York. Um, and they got their little dot matrix mug, mug shots in the face every day. And uh, the conversation around the breakfast table is, can you believe what Shaughnessy wrote this morning? Or, boy, Bob was, uh, Bob was right on about the, the Celtics not showing up last night against the Lakers or something like that. Um, so the discussion was way more uh, – it wasn't nearly as broad as it is today about, uh, about journalism and about – um, the different ways that you can gather your information as a fan. I mean, you you kind of had to go to the one newspaper or the other back then uh, to read about what you wanted to. And there were just so many other opportunities. Uh, the other thing was, too, local television news was just th- those guys were celebrities. Uh, the the sports anchors. Uh, you know, so John Wertheim wrote about the decline of that for SI and uh, centered around Fred Rogan in L.A., here in Boston, it was Bob LaBelle and Mike Lynch and John Dennis on Channel 7. And they were celebrities with a salary to match. And the sports writers would go on their Sunday night show. And uh, the, that, that way, they would enhance their own profiles. So, um, you know, the media world was much, much, much smaller then. But uh, just the, uh, the number of people that kind of had to be drawn to you if they cared about sports was, was uh, way higher. I was going to say, my, uh, my grandparents used to take me to spring training in Fort Lauderdale once a year uh, for Yankees. And I remember seeing Jerry Azar from Channel 7 on the field and clamoring to get his autograph. I literally have an autograph <laughs> program with Jerry Azar. And uh, if you want to buy that from me, I'm willing, to, uh, I'm willing to part with that bad boy. It was such a big deal that I remember going to minor league games here. We used to have the Cleveland Indians minor league team up here in the 80s for like three or four years. and. Uh, 
the local sports guys here in Portland would sign autographs alongside the players outside the clubhouse after the game. And uh, yeah, even then when I was like 14 years old, I thought that was a little much, (laughs) but uh, it was the way, you know, it was how it was. They were, they were genuine celebrities. Before we continue with two riders singing Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my little adorable niece, Amelia, who's all about the snazzy throwback gear available at royalretros.com. So Amelia, would you say you're more of a New Jersey General's hat person or a San Francisco Demon's hoodie gal? Amelia, are you going to go with the Seattle Pilots jacket or the Southern California Sun mini helmet? No. Amelia, seriously, it's me, Uncle Jeffy, fun Uncle Jeffy. Can't you just help a guy out with his only sponsor? I love you, girl, but you're fired. When you see Bob Ryan appearing on ESPN shows, um, and I actually mean this for all veterans, we can go Skip, we can go Stephen A, we can go Wilbon, we can go Kornizer, we can go Bob. Like, I used to be very negative that like I used to be my head. I was like, oh, this is so dehumanizing. And this is really this guy was one of the great writers, blah, blah. And now he's barking at TV at people half his age. And and then recently I was thinking, maybe I shouldn't be that hard on him. Maybe they're just surviving. Like, maybe they're just surviving in a business that's hard to survive in. Um, I don't know. You're kind of a traditionalist like me. Where do you fall on that? I think it depends on what the show is. Um, you know, I, I watch PTI all day. The sports reporters uh, on Sunday mornings was uh, always really, really good, even though, you know, maybe one of the panelists, you know, all the album or Lupica or what maybe one of them wasn't your your guy, but um, always thought that was really insightful. And it, it had a had a journalism vibe, too. And I know Bob was really bummed when they canceled that. Um, but, you know, if you're going on around the horn and you're you're playing a game where the scoring system really isn't even clear and sort of a kind of a battle quasi battle of hot takes. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, I don't have the energy for that now in, in my fifties. I don't know anybody older does. And then, you know, there's the stuff that's just shameless, the uh, Skip Bayless show, you know, Skip Bayless, Stephen A, stuff like that, where, you know, they don't really believe what they're saying. They're just trying to get a reaction. And uh, I think people have, first established themselves as these really trustworthy journalists showing up on those shows. To, it's kind of unbecoming. I actually think it says something about Skip Bayless. I always say that he has X million Twitter followers and follows nobody. Like yeah. not one person. You don't follow one person. I feel like that is a statement he's trying to make. Have you ever written anything about him? I did. He's in my cowboy book because he uh, he outed Troy Aikman. Yes, I remember that. Which yeah. is sinister, like beyond sinister. Have you written a lot about Skip? No, I try to ignore him. Um, you know, he doesn't resonate around here at all. I mean, I've read some of his older stuff uh, when he was, you know, he covered, like you wrote about Lyman Bostock. Um, he covered that for one of the LA yeah, or beautifully. Paper. Yeah, he did. I was like, how can this be the same guy, you know, writing thoughtfully? But then I don't know when he changed. Clearly, when he was reporting on the Cowboys, he was much closer to what he is now than what he was as a young beat reporter. But, um, you know, sold out for the money and he's, he's got a lot of it, but he seems like kind of a soulless guy, too. I feel like every time I see him, like my number one reaction is, how is this even remotely fulfilling? Like, I get you're getting money, but 
how do you walk away at the end of the day and feel anything but like you just ate five Big Macs? You know, it just seems so unfulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Stephen A, you know, there's kind of a wink and a nod a little bit with him sometimes. And he was a legitimate reporter. I mean, he no, was a candidate really? for, yeah, he, he was going to be, uh, he was a candidate for a Celtics national national basketball writer gig not that long ago. It was probably a little over 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, his career just went off in this completely different direction. I kind of give him credit for recognizing what was going to resonate and how to, you know, he, he had what he had an ESPN radio show or new show in New York that he lost once upon a time. Yeah. Um, and now obviously he's a really successful host with that too. So he, I think he just sort of figured out what he needed to do. And I don't find him, I don't find him as obnoxious by any means as skip. I think Stephen A believes a, a good percentage of what he's saying anyway. And yeah. I find him entertaining too, where right? I don't skip. He's just uh, this kind of guy who makes you feel like you, you need a shower when you're done hearing him talk. Yeah, I don't disagree. Um, let me ask you one more thing. You recently uh, wrote a piece uh, for the Globe. Latest offensive remark followed by dubious apology does not speak well about the state of Boston sports radio. And it was about uh, WEEI's Chris Curtis, who yeah. made a racially offensive joke recently involving Mina Kimes. I won't repeat the joke, but it was gross. And, and um, when I was at SI, I used to work with Jerry Callahan. It's weird because I remember thinking, I've always thought that to be a sports writer and cover such a diverse world, you have to be open-minded. Like it almost seems like the number one requirement. You have to be open-minded. You certainly can't be a racist and cover sports. And yet the more I would read about Jerry and then the more I would read about WEI and then seeing Jerry's tweets, I'm like, yeah. I can't believe this guy was ever in the business. I can't believe these guys are in the business. I don't know how they even look at black athletes or athletes from different countries and see what they see. What am I missing? Well, Jerry's just to the right of Newsmax now um, that uh, that seemed to evolve isn't the right word by any means, but it just seemed to get louder and louder with him over the years. Um, you know, they had, uh, it was 20 years ago, he and his co-host at the time, John Dennis, uh, made a quote-unquote joke on the air about a uh, gorilla escape, escaped at the Franklin Park Zoo up here, and they compared it to a Metco kid waiting for the bus. And, and uh, you know, Metco's uh, low-income kids, you, you, you could kind of, you know, the parallel wasn't, their, their intention was not uh, difficult to, to to solve. And they ended up with, I think, a two-week suspension. May have been increased a little bit after that. But it's been going on for a long time. But I think he masked it for, for quite a while when he was a writer. I mean, he was a tremendous columnist at the Herald. Uh, I found it funny. You know, I always thought his SI pieces were, were terrific. But he always used to gripe that they edited them and edited them a lot. And I know that was... Uh, how things sort of worked at SI, how things could be over, over edited and everybody had to put their fingerprints on it. But I also took that to mean with him that maybe his stuff wasn't as great as he thought it was. Uh, but yeah, he just revealed himself more and more over the years as uh, someone whose opinion you really didn't want to hear about anything anymore. I look back and think we had one black writer on staff, Bill Taylor. We were all white and we hired Jerry Callahan. And I just think that's an indictment of the era that we had no diversity on that staff. 
And we had a guy who was like, who's just revealed himself to be a really ugly fucking human being. And it just, it makes me sad because he was a nut. He seemed like a nice guy to work with. And just, you're like, what happened to these people? I mean, I don't know. I mean, that, that core belief had to be there all along. Right. Sure. I mean, do you, I know a lot of people have been kind of brainwashed in these last what, six to eight years, but, uh, um, you know, I, I feel like there's at least got to be a little nut of that inside you for it to sort of turn into what it's turned into with him. And, uh, you know, he's not relevant anymore around here, uh, just with the, you know, particular small, especially in Massachusetts, small subset of people who uh, see the world through the same awful glasses that he does. In the modern landscape, is Chris Curtis's career over? Is that just a, a hiccup that he moves on from? How does that work out? No, he's back on the air Wednesday, and uh, I I heard they ripped me, but I didn't listen to it because uh, that show they're 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 mad at me mostly not for pointing out the uh, either it was a racist or sexist comment they couldn't seem to quite decide which one it was, but um, for pointing out that their their show isn't good. <laughs> I think I said a chore and a bore is what I called it, and uh, it's both. And um, they didn't like that. So, though, you know, we have two major sports radio stations here in Boston, and I, I tend to jump around depending on who the guest is, the topic they're talking about, that sort of thing. And that one uh, I listen to far less than the, the one that beats them in the ratings on the other station. Uh, let me ask you a final, final question. Your best confrontation you've ever had with anyone in your career, athlete, coach, media person, what do you got? Oh, boy. This wasn't really a confrontation, but it kind of showed my standing in the world. Right. Um, we all had to do globe predictions back. Well, we always have to do them for the baseball section. I you know, did them, came out the other day for this year. Uh, and this must have been back like in 2010. And, you know, I wasn't around the clubhouse much. I was mostly writing online. We were still kind of trying to figure out how we were using our website and uh, defining the roles there. And, you know, so I basically wrote online columns. And, uh, but my predictions ended up in the paper with all the other beat writers. <laughs> and uh, Dustin Pedroia saw him and he took him and pinned him up on his locker and he uh, put like a little check mark by everybody knew. And then he circled me and write, Who the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, oh, he, you know what? He's every beat writer in town told me when they saw that, of course. But, uh, um, you know, I couldn't argue with it. I mean, it wasn't there, right? Uh, it wasn't really around showing my face. So I always love the, um, the, the athlete. We'll show you like like we actually give a shit. You know, like I like right. when it's like, I'm going to prove you wrong. Okay, buddy. Good luck with that. Hope you do. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I think readers take those predictions more seriously than we do by, by quite a big margin. I mean, I got reminded the other day that I picked the Patriots to win the Super Bowl the year after Tom Brady left. And I didn't even remember doing that, <laughs> but somebody on Twitter did, you know. So um, I guess you got to give them give them a little bit of a, a attention and thought because a lot of readers don't forget that stuff. Well, Chad, you're now uh, among a very small group of people who have appeared twice on my mediocre podcast. I uh, I appreciate you. Do I get a robe or something like on uh, SNL? Uh, no, you get a free uh, you get a free Spencer Dunkley uh, fathead for your wall. Nice, tormented yeah. again thirty years later. Exactly. Thank you so much for doing this. As always, I uh, I really appreciate it.
Hey, thanks for having me on. I, re- I, I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for the nice words about the book. I want to thank today's guest, Chad Finn, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Chad on Twitter at GlobeChadFinn and read his work in the Boston Globe. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the one and a kind MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding. <laughs>